For over three years now, Wayne and I have been busily putting together podcasts that attempt to show how the heavens declare the glory of God. Today's Easter special episode is no exception. In Psalm 19.1, David writes that the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse shows forth the work of his hands. Though there is no audible voice in this heavenly proclamation of divine glory, the whole world has heard of it nonetheless. When speaking of the gospel in Romans 10.18, for example, the Apostle Paul quotes directly from Psalm 19. But this silent speech of the heavens is suddenly given a voice in the first gospel. Matthew records that at the baptism of Jesus, quote, After being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. End quote. Did you notice that the heavens were open? The messengers of glory step aside for the glory of God himself. And instead of the silent speech of the sun, moon, and stars, there is an audible voice declaring that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. The heavens, as magnificent as they are, give way to the revealed glory of God incarnate. And when Jesus begins his ministry, Matthew records, quote, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. End quote. Many English translations feature the word heaven in the singular in Matthew 3.17 that I just read, but the Greek word is actually rendered in the plural form, heavens. In the Old Testament, of course, the heavens, the Shema'im, are plural, as in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The astounding thing is that the Lord who created the heavens and the earth was now here on earth the true governor of the day and night, the one who created and named all the stars, was living among us. The God who spoke through the prophet Isaiah now appears in the flesh and speaks the words himself. Quote, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. End quote. On this special Easter episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I discuss the timeline of the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Our desire is to show that the Bible is historically trustworthy, that Jesus did indeed die for our sin by means of Roman crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, and that Jesus rose again from the grave on the third day, all to the glory of God. Come and see. Well, uh, good morning, Mr. Spencer. Uh, it was Good Friday yesterday. We are recording this between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. A happy Easter to you. Good morning and uh, happy Easter. But uh, we're going to think about Christ's crucifixion and what he did for us 
and some of the details around his last week. Yes, yes. Um, important. Uh, if you've been a Christian for a while, or if you're new to the faith, one of the widely discussed topics in the Bible focuses on when exactly did the events surrounding the last week of Jesus happen? When did Jesus die? When did he have the Passover meal? What were the exact dates that we would have for these things? Scholars have debated these things for a long time. And uh, Wayne and I are going to look into a potential chronological solution uh, to some of the problems. And they're not unresolvable problems. We are not saying that the Bible is unreliable or non-historical just because of the information that we lack here 2,000 years later. But there have been many um, theses proposed as to how the last week of Jesus' life before he died unfolded. And so we're going to explore that topic this morning. Um, <laughs> Wayne and I don't mean to, to solve it, but I think Wayne is, uh, Wayne is going to be speaking on about uh, uh, Colin Humphreys, who has a book we've talked about, The Mystery of the Last Supper. And uh, we're going to be talking about Dr. Humphreys' solution, um, his timeline, and looking at some of the dates and things about uh, when all this took place, how it took place. Because Wayne set up what the general problem is between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll get into that, but let's read some scripture before we get into the differences in the Gospels about the Passover. Um, you want to start with Matthew. You have something to read there. Dan, I'm going to read from a section from Matthew 27, and uh, this is about the death of Jesus and some of the things that happened around his death. So um, the the four Gospels give us a kind of condensed uh, version of what happened in Jesus' life and ministry, and they all have a little bit different details in some places, uh, each of the four Gospels. So this is Matthew's Gospel, uh, Matthew 27, uh, verse 45 is where I'll start. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if... Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him were, who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. I'll stop there, Dan. That was 47, 45 through 54 in Matthew wow. 27. Yeah, I, I, was, I like that. The testimony of the Roman soldier there, uh, yeah. But the the whole of the heavens and the earth 
uh, were right. testifying against uh, our sin, and but to the glory of God. And that's always a remarkable passage whenever I read it. Surely this was the Son of God. The yes. whole of the heavens and the earth combined to convince this individual that, uh, that this was the Son of God. And I want to read uh, a passage, perhaps the most well-known uh, Old Testament prophecy of Jesus is in Isaiah. And um, beginning in verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men. This is uh, verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that, of course, was fulfilled in John 11 when he wept in front of Lazarus's tomb and when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sorrowful unto death. So Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with, acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And uh, especially emphasizing the lamb analogy uh, in relation to us being sheep who go astray, Jesus as the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist announces, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The whole world was put, the whole the sin of the whole world was put upon Christ. And uh, he bore our sorrows, our griefs, our sins um, as the sacrificial lamb. And of course, Passover week, Wayne, is uh, the centerpiece of Passover is the lamb. And so we're going to get into um, this Passover week a little bit and the, the idea of when the lambs were slaughtered for Passover, um, when this may have occurred, how this pertains to Matthew, Mark, Luke's account, and how this pertains to John's account. There seems to be some differences and uh, differences to us because we don't have all the details available to us. So this has been a point of discussion for centuries with, with scholars about uh, how, how do we reconcile John with uh, with Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. And so we're going to get into that, Wayne. So uh, where do you want to begin? Well, let's uh, review a little bit of what we talked about uh, the last couple of programs, Dan. So yes, we were talking about calendars, and the background was to discuss different calendars that were in use. Uh, uh, so the Jews uh, followed a calendar at the time of Christ for their official calendar. It was actually a lot like the old Babylonian calendar because they had gone into exile into Babylon. And when they, those who were in Babylon had to follow the Babylon uh, calendar. So that was a, a lunar calendar that uh, measured 
days from sunset to sunset, and uh, that's how they counted days. But they also, during the day, during the daylight hours, they counted the the daylight hours from uh, sunrise around 6 a.m. Uh, or close to 6 a.m. And so when they said the sixth hour, that meant six hours after sunrise. Mm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they kind of did both ways in a certain sense, but that was probably because there were multiple calendars in use. So mm. the um, there were some Jews who didn't go into exile, remember, and so they were kind of scattered around in different places. But so by the time of Jesus, some of the Jews wanted to try and follow a calendar that was like what Moses originally did. Now, in the book by Colin Humphreys, Humphreys calls this the pre-exilic calendar. I think you could call it the Mosaic calendar, but nobody really does that. But I don't know why not. So to me, it's kind of the Mosaic calendar, but it's not like it's spelled out in detail in Scripture. Mm-hmm. So some people wanted to follow something like what Moses originally did. So that included the Essenes, which is a real strict group of Jews. And then uh, there was the Samaritans, which were a, a, a real non-strict group of Jews, you might say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and right, then, right. then there was the uh, Zealots, who were the the uh, kind of violent uh, uh, people who hated the Romans a lot. And uh, so they followed, all of these groups followed something like that pre-exilic or mosaic type calendar. So this meant, and then there was another calendar from a group of Jews in Qumran. And that calendar made Passover happen later. So there was at least three different dates that different groups of Jews celebrated Passover on. So, Wayne, the calendar, the first calendar that you mentioned, that sort of daylight beginning at sunrise and the sixth hour being six hours after sunrise, that would have been the official temple calendar of Jesus' day, correct? Uh, yes, I, I'm, I was going to take a little more time and explain the, some of the difference, but okay. Um, the usual way that Bible scholars look at this, they would have um, the Last Supper on Thursday night of that week, and uh, that um, Thursday evening to Friday evening would be the preparation day. Because they okay. go the day before the Sabbath, and then from Friday evening to Saturday evening would be a, the regular Sabbath, and it was also a special Sabbath because of Passover. It was sort of a double Sabbath, the way it turned out in that way, looking at it. Now, that works out in 30 AD. So the usual way Bible scholars look at this is... Uh, they often say it's it was 30 A.D. when the crucifixion occurred, but another possible date is 33 A.D., and some scholars put it on 33 A.D. and some on 30 A.D. If you mm. if you make it 30 A.D., you have to have the uh, Last Supper on Thursday night, um, and that tends to be what a lot of Bible scholars do. But I I'm convinced myself that it's better to say. It was 33 A.D., and that's, okay. the, that's the way Humphreys works it out, and he actually puts the Last Supper on Wednesday night instead of Thursday night. 
Okay, so let's be let's let's kind of review what you're saying here. There are two dates for when we have the alignment of the Passover and the Sabbath. Two years. There's 30 A.D. where this occurs, and there is 33 A.D. where this occurs. Is that correct? Yes, and those are dates that that are narrowed down because uh, we know that the Jews measure the beginning of the month when the new crescent comes up. Now, to our calendars, the way we do it today, it would that would turn out about a week and a half or something after the beginning of our month. Yes. So their months are out of sync with our calendar today. But right. They started the month uh, at new moon, and then the first crescent comes up and becomes visible. Mm-hmm. And, and then two weeks later, it's at full moon uh, that Passover happens. Some, of, some wall calendars, the paper wall calendars that you have, uh, will have f- moon shapes on them as you go through the month. And somewhere in the middle of the month, if you have one of these kind of calendars, uh, you can see a moon in a crescent phase. And so in the middle of our months is when this crescent moon begins to appear at sunset around that time. And for the ancient Jews, a new month began in what is today the middle of our months. And so two weeks, about, as you said, Wayne, two weeks from the time you see the crescent, uh, the moon is full. In the Bible, I have this little, this is a great book, The Astronomy of the Bible by E.W. Maunder. It's uh, over 100 years old, but it's still pretty relevant and good with the information he has in it. And he talks about the word chodesh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's a Hebrew word for month or moon derived from a root word that means to be new. So when you see chodesh, um, Mr. Maunder says, it is employed where either reference is made to the shape or the newness of the crescent moon, what we've been talking about, or where the word month is used in any precise way. This is the word for month employed throughout by the prophet Ezekiel, for example, who is so precise in the dating of his prophecies. And so Chodesh means essentially new moon or new month. And so two weeks from the new moon is the full moon, and that's where we come to celebrate Passover. How about that? Right. So uh, now in Colin Humphrey's book, he wades through a lot of details that come to this uh, Mm -hmm. point of view. But um, so in the there, there's uh, three calendars, at least three that were in use by Jews in Israel at the time of Christ. One was um, the official one. And you might think of that, that puts the Passover date in the middle of the other two. So there was the Essenes and the Samaritans and the Zealots. The Essenes were a real strict group. The Samaritans were a very (laughs) non-strict group of Jews. And and then there's the uh, Zealots, who are the ones who hated the Romans. Okay, all of those groups wanted to follow something like what Moses originally did. There was also a separate calendar from some of the people in Qumran, and it's not like the one I'm talking about. Okay, okay. So there's there's a special Qumran group who had a different calendar, and it puts Passover after uh, the official date. So that one can't be related to the ones described in the Bible. Gotcha. Well, it's good that we clarify that. It must be not related. So, so the two, the ones that are in question, and, and Humphreys calls 
the he refers to the official Jewish calendar, and he says that it, it's the Book of John that's using that one, and and it describes it as, and he uses the phrase Jewish Passover, or, or it says Jewish in front of certain things to be clear. It's talking about the official calendar, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. the other three gospels have different ways of referring to Passover, and so. The funny thing is, if you put things together from all four Gospels, when the disciples were going to do their Last Supper, Jesus called it a Passover, and the disciples referred to it as a Passover meal. So they clearly thought of it as a real Passover meal. But yet it seems to have been before most Jews did the Passover by the official calendar. So how can you have... The Passover by the with the disciples on a, it seems like a different day than the regular Jews. Were they just being um, trying to be flexible or something? Were they just <laughs> they're saying, "Well, this is like a Passover, but it's not yeah. the Passover." I don't think Jews would do it that way. I think that these different groups were very particular about what day they did this and the mm. time they ate the meal. This was all very important to them. Yeah, so it wouldn't be like, oh, we'll just make this up to yeah. sort of make this fit. Uh, they would be very calendrically ordered. And to me, Wayne, I think, so to clarify for my own sake and for our listeners, John's calendar, the argument goes that John is, Colin Humphrey's argument is that John is using the official Jewish temple calendar, correct? Gotcha. Okay. If you go back to the what we said about 30 A.D. and 33 A.D., uh, Humphreys is arguing for the 33 AD date for the crucifixion. And uh, we know that the uh, um, the Passover meal was eaten um, before uh, or right before new moon, um, full moon. It had to be. So if you look up full moon and astronomically, you can identify what days of the week the Passover came up. In, mm-hmm. in different years. And this is how you can narrow down between 30 A.D. and 33 A.D. Okay. So now Christian scholars have, um, they have different reasons for going with 30 A.D., but one of them that's a frequent argument for it, it goes back to the book of Daniel and the uh, prophecies of Daniel regarding the 70 weeks. The hmm. 70 weeks of Daniel is a prophecy that, that um, many Christian scholars think leads you up to uh, you know, when the beginning of Jesus' ministry was, and that argues for the 30 AD date for the crucifixion. Uh, but Humphreys doesn't really agree with that, and he says that if you put that the beginning of Jesus' ministry too early, then it doesn't work. And if it's too late, it doesn't work because of various details in the New Testament. Things have to work out in a certain timeline. You can't have things happening too late because you don't have time for Paul to become a Christian before before certain things happen. Or right. you know, if it's too early, then, then you, you run into the question of, was there enough time or was there too much time for Jesus' ministry? So there's questions over the Gospels as well over how long was Jesus' ministry. The book, mm-hmm. of, the book of John 
seems to make Jesus' ministry about three years because it mentions, I think it's three Passovers. Some people say four, maybe more. Yeah, I might not have the details on that exact. But so the the uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention those Passover details as much, so they may be kind of condensing more, whereas John is doing it in a little more chronological manner, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, giving more details on some of the Jewish festivals and, and such. Any, at any rate, the timing of all of this is it's a puzzle to try and reconcile it all. And the way Humphreys reconciles it, he, he argues for the 33 AD date for the crucifixion. If you go with 33 AD and you look at that uh, Mosaic calendar, the pre-exilic calendar that I was talking about, that calendar puts Passover two days earlier than the official Jewish calendar. So if you follow that pre-exilic calendar, the, Humphrey, the way Humphrey describes it, the pre-exilic calendar um, puts the Passover date for the Passover meal would be on Wednesday, not Thursday night. So... Um, that's how the disciples could be celebrating a real Passover, but they could have a different night, a different night of the week. Hypothetically speaking, you know, Jesus is confronting throughout his ministry the tradition surrounding the temple, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the customs, the traditions of men. He upbraids them constantly for their their traditions. Now, I'm not saying that this this is explicit in the text, but you would think that if Jesus came to to fulfill all righteousness, as he says to John when he's baptized, that he would be using the correct calendar with his disciples. Yes, or, and I he would know, wouldn't he? Uh, which <laughs> yeah, which I would was think, the right one? I would, he's yeah, he's uh, the he's the uh, author of time. <laughs> yeah, and, this, and so in terms of in terms of, <laughs> I mean, this is just this is just internal logic in my brain working here. In terms of how calendar celebrations should be, <laughs> yeah. going back to the Old Testament when he says you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to do this. When it comes time for the real deal, um, Jesus is. Uh, is, he knows exactly when it should be, right? He, I would Lord think so, yeah. So an, <laughs> another uh, a kind of thread of this that Humphreys mm-hmm. develops is about the Essenes. Humphreys, okay. Humphreys argues that the place where the disciples had the Last Supper in the upper room was probably in the home of an Essene. And they had a certain uh, corner, sort of in the southwest corner of Jerusalem. And that... Uh, Hmm. They would have been have certain strict rules about cleanliness and washing and some things like that, probably. Hmm. And he tries to relate the Essene practices to the things that happened when they went into Jerusalem that day. And he so he argues that the disciples and Jesus did the Last Supper at the place of an Essene. And that ties in with this as well. It is consistent with the calendar part of it. So you know what brings this to mind, Wayne, is the the woman, the Samaritan, that Jesus confronts at the well. This I don't know if this ties in. It's just a thought I had. 
But she says she's confused about where worship. Sh- you guys say this. We some people say this, right? I, right. I don't know. Um, and she's mildly confused. What, what, what to me that that triggers is there are different customs, Lord. Which one is the right one? Right. You know, and so that she would have been. Well, she was a Samaritan, so there was another tradition there as well. But but there that that is an indication, I think, of of the somewhat uh, multiplicity of traditions yes. in and around the time of Jesus. Yeah, and I, I think that. Jesus was very clear with her about that. Yeah, uh, so, yeah. Jesus was never uh, waffling and unclear on these things. No, no, but that's where he was confronting the confusion, right? Part yes. of that, uh, yeah. the tradition. He, I mean. The lists against the Pharisees that he has in the, in Matthew, the the, the excoriating uh, rebuke of the Pharisees and their traditions, making people sons of hell, not helping them, not lifting a finger to help them with their traditions and all of these things, and so part of that obviously would be calendrical observations and wanting to do, uh, thinking that by their traditions they are that through their observances that they are being made right with God. And so Jesus comes, and he's on the, as we say, he would be on the right calendar. <laughs> he would know um, exactly how this was to be fulfilled. So so that's how I see John could say that Jesus, that, that the Jews were operating in accordance with their temple calendars, while over here in a corner, northwest corner of Jerusalem somewhere, you had Essenes, on another calendar, another tradition. Yeah, and um, Dan, the date was actually specified in the Old Testament when they were to do the Passover meal. Uh, and, and, and Ezekiel forty-five twenty-one, for example, is a verse that it's very clear that it, it should be do, done on Nisan 14. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 30 AD, Nisan 14 would not be... Um, on the, on the, uh, that Wednesday, it would be on the Thursday, but mm-hmm. in in 33 A.D., it would be on Wednesday night. Mm. That's why uh, the, the Colin looks Colin Humphreys looks at this uh, from that point of view from 38 33 A.D. and I think it works out better because then the trials of Jesus comes up in this you know the certain things that happened after Jesus was arrested. And and there's you, when you do the 33 A.D. date of the crucifixion, and you put the Last Supper on Wednesday night, then there's more time for those trials and the rest and the, the things that happened the way the Jews did it. And this is this is wonderfully spiritually meaningfully ironic. For it, let's say John really is going with the temple calendar, right? And remember Jesus and John, he's saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Right. Right? It took 46 years for us to build this temple. What are you talking about? Right? So they were they were steeped in their traditions. But how ironic it is, Wayne, that in John, we are told the Jews didn't want to defile themselves by conducting, by by trying Jesus and crucifying him on the Passover. And so notice that contrast. Right. They didn't want to break ritual purity. They thought, well, we want to be ritualistically pure. 
but talk about <laughs> missing the point. Right. You know, you want to be ritually, ritualistically pure before God, but you're crucifying this the is, Son of God. This is like what Jesus said. You strain out a gnat and swallow a yes. camel. Yes, and so yeah. so it, it makes perfect sense that John is emphasizing the calendar of the traditions of the Jews of the temple. Because in one sense, Jesus could fulfill the Passover on both calendars. He could rightly fulfill it in terms of chronological time with his Essene friend, if he was Essene, in that, in that house. And then there's the religious temple calendar, which Jesus came to overturn, remember? And the temple veil was torn in two, yes. and then the temple is later destroyed. So Jesus is literally, by his sacrifice, destroying that whole system. You know, And so, so that makes sense that John would emphasize that calendar in terms of a Passover, I think. It's it's wonderfully to me. It, it's making total sense why they, we would have this difference. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Yes, and it, but it's also beautiful the way it, it fu- is. fulfills it re- well, the, the 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 Passover. So yeah. Jesus was able to have uh, uh, the Last Supper with his disciples, and then he was crucified on Friday. So um, this made the time of his death. Uh, about the time that the uh, the actual lambs were being sacrificed by the yes. priests, yeah. So he really was he was dying with the lambs at the yeah. same time. And so John wasn't making this up, like some people say. This wasn't a literary device. John doesn't move the calendar to accomplish his theological purpose. No, Jesus confronts the temple calendar, literally the one that was in existence. There's nothing. John's not making this up. He's not making up a new tradition so that Jesus can be the Passover lamb. Right. It turns out to be that through the Jewish tradition that Jesus is is exactly part and fulfillment of what Isaiah says, what we just read in Isaiah, that he is led to the slaughter like a lamb led to the slaughter. And so John's not moving a calendar to make a point. Right. The temple calendar exists, and the point is made, ironically— when the Jews are being ceremonial and wanting to be pure ceremonially, they're actually committing the, the, the most heinous crime of the, in the universe, as Peter later preaches in Acts. You people crucified the Son of God, and then you know they're cut to the heart. What do we do, right? Yeah. But but they realize that Jesus he's he's confronting their traditions, Wayne, and that is that those traditions are centered on the temple, and that's why John, I think, mentions that calendar, uses that that time frame. That would make total sense. Right, and there, it really should be centered around Jesus, not the, not the temple building. Absolutely. That's why we, we have tear this temple down, and in three days I'll raise it up. They didn't get that. Nobody got that. Right. That, Nobody got that reference. They stumbled on that one. Let's talk, Dan, about some of the uh, trial uh, questions. Okay, because the issue is here in terms of time— if the supper was on Thursday, um, then you have a Friday crucifixion. There's a lot going on between a Thursday and a Friday. Yeah, um, so that would be uh, a real a real big rush to get it all done in one night. Yeah, right. That seems like a lot to do. Um, but if you if you rewind it back to the Essene Wednesday, um, then you have more time to conduct these trials. Um, and um, so so. Yeah, let's unpack that a little let's, bit. Let's, uh, Dan. I would like to read a little portion from Humphrey's book, and this is where he is quoting from some Jewish uh, books called the Mishnah, 
which is a, a collection of uh, uh, books that spell out regulations and, and rules and practices that the Jews followed. So um, it says, uh, in capital cases, they hold the trial during the daytime and the verdict must be reached during the daytime. In capital cases, a verdict of acquittal may be reached on the same day, but a verdict of conviction not until the following day. Therefore, the trials may not be held on the eve of a Sabbath or the eve of a feast day, and of course they couldn't be. The trials could also not be held on the on the Sabbath or the feast day itself. So, the the Sabbath, I mean the the Passover started the feast of unleavened bread, and uh, so you you couldn't, according to their regulations, you couldn't have a trial on Passover or on the beginning of that feast and you couldn't you couldn't have it the day before either. Okay. So it makes the it makes the uh idea that this all happened thurs between Thursday and Friday somewhat tenuous. Now what is the what is that document from which he is quoting if you go back That mind a is the that. uh uh Mishnah Sanhedrin four point one. Okay, that's what he calls, and it. that would have been a, a, a something that would have would have um, historically we have a little bit more insight from that about uh, the way uh, trials and traditions would have been conducted in that time period. Yeah, now sometimes Christian scholars have have argued that uh, because some of these Mishnah documents were written after the time of Christ, that we don't really know if they followed those practices at the mm. time of Jesus, but. Mm. Uh, I, Humphrey says that Jewish scholars said that they did. Um, now I'm not an expert on the Jewish practices, but it sounds to me like those rules were written uh, based on well-established practices of the Jews. So that, but Christian scholars have traditionally said that the Jews did their trials illegally, that they were breaking Mm. their own rules about the trials. To have a trial at night to condemn someone to death was uh, against the law to them. And and you couldn't condemn someone um, in one trial without a second trial. You had to have a second confirmatory trial to confirm the verdict. So you had to, you, you, vote to condemn the person and then you sleep on it and the next day then you the Sanhedrin comes together again to confirm the verdict of death. Well and the idea of the you mentioned this word sleeping on it giving it a day um, this would explain or could have explained if you have the interval of another day another evening something to sleep on this might explain the dream that Pilate's wife had because I've always asked well when did when did she have this dream if this all happened within, you know, from the arrest uh, in the garden, the betrayal of Judas, the arrest in the garden, uh, the trial being before Pilate, um, when did Herod, When did Pilate's wife have the dream? Yeah, well, and, you, and, and for that matter, when did they get Pilate's permission to, to, to talk to him? If there was only one night to do all of this, they had to find all these witnesses. There was a whole bunch of witnesses. They had to grab them out of bed, and then, then they had a trial at night, and then— the 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 trial actually would have started probably before dawn and then continued into 
right after after dawn, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then somewhere on that, during the trial or maybe before daylight, they had to wake up Pilot. How did they? Are they going to do that? I wouldn't want to wake up Pilot. <laughs> you know exactly. And, and then the, what- you mentioned his wife. No, his wife has to have a dream about Jesus that disturbs her, and then she goes to Pilot before he sees Jesus. How does that work out all on Thursday night? And then you have the problem of of the crowd, who whatever the crowd was, who was who was obviously big enough to influence Pilot's uh, decision, especially with the. Uh, you know, threat of, of, you know, Caesar, right? They mentioned we have no king but Caesar and Pilate's like, right. hmm, I don't want to lose my, my governorship here. Um, and you know, I'm governing the Jews. I got to please them. Um, but if I, if I don't crucify this guy, they're going to be upset with me. I might not be, but, but the dream of his wife and all of this, uh, at the crowd, um, it's, it's not easy to see that people would gather at like three o'clock in the morning, uh, for all this to be taking place, right? But but seem... if you look at it from Wednesday night, okay, the la- the Last Supper with the disciples would have gone late into the night, the evening, and then they went to Gethsemane. Jesus prays. They were probably in the garden for at least an hour, maybe more, multiple hours, mm-hmm. and um, then Jesus is arrested. They take Jesus to first. They go to Annas. Uh, now, Annas was uh, apparently the prior high priest, but he was probably the elder, the eldest high priest, you might say. He was, mm-hmm. he was uh, probably treated with extra respect and uh, highly, highly respected. I, I think he was also actually uh, put out of position by a Roman official somehow. So he would have been a highly esteemed person, and they really would have wanted his opinion. So his Jesus was taken to him at night. That's clear that that was at night, and uh, the uh, the denials of, G, of Peter uh, when Peter said he didn't know Jesus that was before daylight or close to daylight, probably close to dawn. Um, and so all of that was before daylight, but the trial, according to their regulations, was supposed to be in the daytime. Mm. And then, so mm-hmm. if you if Jesus was arrested Wednesday night, then you have time for the main trial to take place Thursday morning, and there'd be plenty of time for that trial. And that trial could have taken hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's many witnesses. How long does it take for that? Could have taken half a day or more. There's back and forth to the other Herod as well. Yes, and he went to Herod, came back. So there's time for that, um, and then at some point Jesus was turned over to the Roman guards. And on Thursday, in this scenario, Jesus would have been uh, put in prison and kept overnight somehow, somewhere, under Roman guard. And then it was Friday morning, early, first thing in the morning at sunrise, the Sanhedrin meets a second time to confirm the guilty verdict to put him to death. And so it, this in the Wednesday night scenario for the Last Supper, then you have time for, um, on during Thursday, first the Sanhedrin 
gets their main trial over with and they have the verdict, but they can't they can't condemn someone to death without the authority of Pilate. So they go to Pilate during Thursday during the day and get his permission to arrange to meet him. And, and I'm not sure when that happened. And, and when they they must have brought Jesus before Pilate Friday morning, but they must have had talked to Pilate before that. So in the Wednesday night scenario, you have time for Pilate's wife to have a dream, and then they talk to Pilate the next day, and there's time before he sees Jesus for that to work out. The one thing that we don't have from Scripture, if if we, if we go with a Wednesday, is what happened, what was going on between Thursday night, Friday morning uh, with Jesus. We don't have a story of him being in prison or whatever. We don't know right. uh, what what transpired there between Pilate handing him over and making that verdict and, you know, but, or, or where he was held. But, but the point of the matter is that there's a ton of historical evidence that we have. We have the gospels, we have Jewish tradition, we have Jerusalem in and around, we have real people as Luke addresses in his narrative in Acts and Luke, you know, we have Pilate, we have Herod, we have uh, Agrippa when Paul's going around, um, these are real people in real circumstances and real situations. And, um, you know, the other, the other thing about this is you have real ritualistic Jewish temple religion in and around first century Jerusalem. And for my two cents, Wayne, it seems like, um, whatever chronology you adapt, I think, I think one thing that, that what the gist of what we're talking about here is that this is quite historical in nature because, if you're just making this up, if you're just writing this story in and around Jerusalem and spreading your 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 ideas abroad, anybody in and around the time, the, the predominant, the cultural domination of of first century Jewish temple religion, um, especially when you have a religion that is spoken out against that and those traditions, if this was all false, they could have easily put this to bed um, because of where it happened what happened the the cultural influence of of the Jews of this time right and 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 it's interesting too when i hear skeptics make cases against the historicity of jesus or the historicity of the bible or the untrustworthiness of the narratives of the gospels or something the skeptics are always using historical documents from the time period to try to make their case that they assume to be reliable in other words they might even take some of the bible and say well the bible's unreliable but i'm going to take this part as historically reliable to make my case and so whether you're skeptic or not, the the idea is that the, the scriptural texts uh, give us the best explanation for why Christianity began. Um, right. And so so that, I think, if if nothing else, this, this calendar idea is certainly a wonderful thing to look into. And, and Colin Humphreys, of all the books I've read about, you know, different things, he's, he's, he's a non-scholarly approach to this. You can really follow this book, whether you agree with him or not is another thing. But you can really go, okay, at least, you know, for me, I got out of it that we can be pretty sure when Jesus was crucified, given the what we know about the moon and what we know about the, the months and uh, all of this. Right. So, Dan, when I, when I finished Humphrey's book, I wanted to see if I could find other historical evidence to kind of confirm this about the 33 A.D. date Okay, uh, and uh, so I started doing some research, and I 
track down some interesting things. There is uh there's actually there used to actually be some Roman records uh that mentioned the some things about the crucifixion of Christ. There was a man named Eusebius who had he was known for his records regarding the Olympics. The Olympics, Dan, go go back to times in the in Greek history way before the time of Christ. Yeah. Right, right. And right. so um now the original records were lost but these records were roman records and they were they've been quoted by a number of scholars that came along in the first second century and so on so uh, i want to read a quote this this is um from, originally from a man named eusebius but this is actually quoted from jerome and it says, in the fourth year, however, of Olympiad 202, an eclipse of the sun happened, greater and more excellent than any that had happened before it. At the sixth hour, day turned into dark night, so that stars were seen in the sky. And an earthquake in Bithynia toppled many buildings of the city of Nicaea. Hmm. Now... It says Olympiad 202. Now, the the Olympiad is a reference to what you might call the Olympic year. It's a certain way of counting the year where the new Olympics, uh, the new Olympiad started in the summer. And then they would have these uh, contests, right, these uh, sports contests over some period of a few years. And then you'd start a new Olympiad. So he's saying in the fourth year of Olympiad 202. So that means you could narrow down when that was. And I, best I could tell, that would have to be 33 AD. That that fourth year of Olympiad 202 could not be 30 AD, hmm. from what I could tell. There are other people that quote, uh, Roman historical records or something that referred to the time of Christ and they referred to the dark sky or they, uh, but this one was neat to me because it referred to the earthquake. Yeah, right. That's fantastic. Now, now Dan, yeah, there's, people... there's more to this. There is a record from the uh, National Oceanic uh, and Atmospheric Administration uh, there's a, a, a something called the National Geophysical Data Center, where you can look up earthquakes that happen in different parts of the world all through history from any records that we have. And uh, so the National Geophysical Data Center, I looked on that for any earthquakes in Israel from the years of 25 to 35 A.D. There was only one listed, and it was in 33 A.D., there were there was none in 30 AD so there does seem to be external corroborating um um uh, the the olympic one to me is fascinating that 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 you even have this message this mention of of darkness and an earthquake uh together um which is what matthew describes the the darkness it's interesting too wayne that i've had uh, skeptics on on twitter tell me you know Hey, uh, what about all these dead people that walk around Jerusalem after 
Jesus's resurrection here. What, what about all this? They, you know, they call it the zombie apocalypse or whatever, and they're mocking it or whatever. Um, but, but they say that the, the retort is, where are all the historians who certainly would have recorded such an unusual event? In other words, they're saying that, uh, you know, dead people coming out of their graves, isn't that newsworthy? Why wouldn't there be more Romans or Greeks writing this down and preserving it for all posterity? Why don't we have more accounts of this other than just Matthews? And so um, my rejoinder to this is uh, Mount Vesuvius. And you know Mount Vesuvius destroyed the city of Pompeii in 79 AD. It was an incredible volcano. Um, But it destroyed Vesuvius, the town of Vesuvius, in 79 AD, uh, the very same time period in which the Gospels were circulating in and around uh, Jerusalem in in that area. And did you know, Wayne, how many historically preserved written accounts? I'm not saying Vesuvius didn't happen. I'm just saying how many historians records do we have surviving today of that account you would think that there would be a lot yeah i don't know one one pliny the younger that's the only written account we have of the volcano erupting now i'm not saying this that oh the volcano probably didn't erupt i'm only saying that an event so huge like a volcano erupting and destroying an entire city you would think because of the magnitude of that event being widespread you would have more historical right. records of this, but there's only but there's only one. So to say that why aren't there any historians writing about people rising out of their graves in Jerusalem? Well, well, keep Dan also keep in mind the Jews were a subjugated people under the Romans. Why would the Romans care about the Jews uh, enough to do that? And and why would Romans believe the Jews about that? Right, and even even if I, I think too, another another potential explanation here is that, uh, uh, as you say, the subjugation uh, of Rome. But but also, I, I think to some degree, if you look at the miracles that Jesus did, look at the reaction that is recorded of the miracles in the Bible of of these religious leaders. They're unimpressed. They're like, um, how do you how are you doing this stuff? You know, they're they're not. It's like they're they're more accustomed to the supernatural maybe than we are, and so they see Jesus do something, and they they don't have this. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! They go, well, show us another one. Give me a sign. What's by what sign do you do these? <laughs> that's things? right. So they're totally unimpressed by this. They, they're like, eh, eh, you know. And it's like it's like Moses in the Egyptian court. You know, the Egyptians could re could could actually do some of the things that Moses was doing. And so this 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 openness to to the supernatural in the ancient world is a little bit more than maybe what we as rational scientific modern evangelicals would be comfortable with, right? The, right. the manifestation of miracles would freak us out, right? We I don't know, but but all that to say that this would not have been even if there were people like like Lazarus, the whole raising of Lazarus. We don't have even Lazarus's words, we don't have any of really, oh my gosh, Lazarus, oh my Lord, how did you do that? Oh, you know, they're not like, oh my gosh, he's back from the dead or whatever. It's it, it's not, they don't, the gospel's records of miracles are very much reported in a, in a very, they're not embellished. Right, and so the, the critical thing that changed the, the direction of the trial was when... Uh, 
they asked Jesus, are you the son of God? And he said, yes. And you mm. will see the son of man uh, coming from the clouds of heaven and sitting at the right hand of the, of the righteous one. So they said uh, by that he was he was committing blasphemy. So yeah. they were more uh, bent out of shape over what he claimed about himself than about the miracles. They were they were not they were not convinced by the miracles. No, but then of course Stephen in Acts uh, the book of Acts when he's giving the testimony he says I see the heavens open and, and Jesus sitting at the right hand of God he he dies. He's, the Jews, like what Jesus says to the to, to, in, in, in his trial, happens in, in Stephen's testimony. And then Stephen is stoned to death where the Apostle Paul consented uh, as Saul uh, to, to the murder of Stephen. But Stephen sees the glory of God. Stephen sees Jesus. And, and the Jews around him uh, stone him for this. That's that same sort of, well, you're blaspheming. We don't, we don't want to hear this. Um, so it, it, he's put to death for blasphemy. He's put to death on the cross. He's... he's uh, led to the slaughter, he's sacrificed, he dies, he's laid in a grave. And um, now, just one thing maybe we can address, this is a little bit of an aside into to the overall topic of Passover, but uh, one thing people get kind of hung up on sometimes, mostly skeptics, it's not really a big deal, is is the idea of Jesus in the grave three days and three nights. Now, as we reckon days and nights... How could he go into the grave on Friday and be out on Sunday? And how do we count that as three days? Yes, this has been a, nights. this was a question to me as a <laughs> as a young Christian, Dan. And I remember, yeah, it was for me too. I remember going to one of my oh, a pastor of a church that I used to go to and asking him this. And uh, but I think uh, Humphrey's book explains this very clearly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does. And uh, just so briefly for our listeners, what's the most of them? Most of y'all probably know what this is. But Wayne, just for just for uh, review, uh, how do we explain this? Well, what's, the what's... Jews had a con- had a term that they called the Ona, or the o- sometimes it's Onah, Onah, Ona or Nah. Yeah. Ona. So uh-huh. what this meant was any any part of a day or a night is counted like the whole. So, okay, let's, let's remember Jesus was crucified on Friday afternoon. From Friday afternoon until sunset around 6 p.m., that is counted as a whole day. A whole day. Because that would be an owner to them. Yeah, that part of Friday is a whole day. Then you have the, the sunset at night is a new day. Yeah, so the from, from 6 p.m. or sunset, that's the start of the Sabbath day. Mm-hmm. So the Sabbath day goes to them, goes from around 6 p.m. Friday evening to Saturday evening. That's the second day. That's the second to, day. That's the second and day. And then Saturday evening to Sunday morning and until Sunday evening would is the would be the entire third day, but because you you have Jesus uh, coming back to life early uh, Sunday morning, that's part of a day, and that's the, that's the, third, that's day. the third day. So it's three onas. So to them, there's no contradiction at all. They just had a kind of funny way of counting. Yeah. Now, one more thing in relation to the resurrection. On the evening of the 16th, of Nisan 16, uh, you might have uh, barley sheaf are harvested, not the whole thing. And then uh, on the daylight of the sixteenth, um, you would have the the feast of first fruits, which comes from Leviticus twenty three. 
which would be, you know, of course, bringing in the harvest is is akin to, you know, what Jesus says of himself, uh, a seed falling into the ground and dying, yielding a crop. And then, of course, the harvest, the Lord of the harvest, yes. the first the first fruits of the resurrection. He was the first fruits from the dead. Uh-huh. And and so the fulfillment of of Leviticus 23, the, the law of of or the law of the celebration of the feast of the first fruits. And so um, so that was that coincided with um, the Passover and the unleavened bread and the and the Sabbath. And then you had the first fruits on uh, Nisan 16, which would have made the chronology of 33 AD uh, fit calendrically right. and fit with, with the moon, with the uh, new moon, the crescent moon, uh, with the Passover, with the unleavened bread, and uh, with the first fruits. It all seems to go together to make the most possible, probable year, I think, as April, the date of the crucifixion would have been April 3rd, 33 AD, if we follow Dr. Humphreys's um, thesis. Yeah, and Dan, if somebody feels strongly about 30 AD, I wouldn't be real dogmatic, but I... Yeah, it's not. I, a... uh, if you go with 33 AD, I am not sure how to reconcile the 70 weeks of Daniel with 33 AD. That oh, okay, is, that that's is, a whole other topic. That, was, that is one little puzzle. I'm not sure how to unravel, but there's been more than one interpretation of the 70 weeks over the years, too. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a that's a kind of open question to me, but uh, I prefer to rely on the historical evidence and sort of reconciling the historical information we have with Scripture, and that argues for 33 A.D. To, to me for the crucifixion. Yeah, we are a historical religion that uh, occurred uh, in time with in physical places with physical people. And uh, no, this is not like uh, Hogwarts or Harry Potter, where <laughs> the whole story was conduct- con- constructed by one author as a fantasy. Um, nobody is uh, making a religion out of Harry Potter, and nobody would die for the, the reality of, of Harry Potter and Hogwarts and, and all that, um, which so many skeptics would say. Um, oh, well, there's London and Harry Potter, so that makes Harry Potter true. No, that's not what we're arguing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's different. <laughs> That's different, um, but we are arguing, and uh, we had uh, Dr. Craig Keener on the book club uh, a couple of months ago, and he wrote a four-volume commentary on the book of Acts, and he outlines a very intensively, thoroughly investigated case for the historicity and the very careful historicity of Luke and his recording of certain things and how his his uh, his Luke Acts is is historically so historically reliable that it's one of the only few documents that we have that really gives us the details of daily life in the Eastern Mediterranean from a a common man's perspective. Right, um, I've heard about that. Yeah, oh, yeah. it's uh, it's so that so whether you agree with moving the Passover supper to a Wednesday or what do you think about whatever John's doing, I think uh, Doctor Humphreys's book demonstrates that we have enough at our fingertips to to give us the confidence that the story of Jesus's death burial and resurrection happened in history in time um in a real place but with real people and we can trust the gospels right and Dan we we uh, haven't talked a lot about, on good heavens about the resurrection but you know Jesus resurrection was something that I think um uh, 
the Romans would have loved it if they could have explained it away very well. Uh, and so they, the they would have they would have loved to have produced the body or something. Uh, right, the Jews especially with the the Sanhedrin, the the religious leaders. Uh, of course, you have the the testimony of Gamaliel when he's talking about the apostles. He's like, guys, if this is of God, leave them alone, yeah. lest you be found fighting against God. You know, and and he yeah. says too, it's it's the wisest counsel in all of Scripture from from one of the Jewish uh, people. He says, "Look, if this is not of God, it will die out, just like all these other, you know, little rabbinic sects that were running around Jerusalem. They they will have their end." Um, Justin Bass, in his book, I interviewed Justin Bass a, a while ago. He he did a he, he came up with a book. Uh, he wrote a book called Bedrock, uh, the Bedrock uh, of Christianity, and he 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 points out what a Jewish Messiah he gives the example of uh, I think it's Simon Barjona, I have to go back and look but he gives the example of a Jewish uh, leader who was thought to be messianic but was killed and when he was killed they didn't regather and wait around for him to rise from the dead I mean when he died that movement was over yeah I think it was Simon Barjona I think but but to the point of Gamaliel's <coughs> advice to his fellow uh, board members if you will, was like, look, if these guys are making this up, if this is just a zealot, another zealot movement, it will die out. But be careful that you're not found fighting against God. If this movement is of God, you will not be able to resist it. And so that's the, uh, I think that's the, uh, the the best advice, you know. Right. Uh, be careful. Don't resist. You may, lest you be f- found fighting against God. Right. And so yeah. instead of that, we should rejoice. Um with uh, Christ's resurrection and his resurrection uh, gives us uh, uh, grace and power to, to change our lives today. Yeah, and, and it also, too, for me, as, as Isaiah says, he bore our sorrows and our griefs and our iniquities. And a lot of people have the misconception that if Jesus died for my sin, I become a Christian. Um, everything is wonderful and happy and and bright and great and wonderful and but if you look and it's not I'm not saying that it isn't a lot of people have this wonderful a wonderful transforming um, experience in becoming Christians absolutely that is absolutely true but I think a lot of times we've painted Christianity as if you become a Christian uh, it's all going to be a bed of roses from here on out and uh, that's certainly not yeah and that Jesus didn't promise it would be easy no no and you know Paul had this weakness right Paul talked about a thorn in the flesh and look at all the things that Paul suffered you know he he suffered and you look at Hebrews and look at how these these great people of faith suffered for their testimony and you know Paul's whatever Paul's infirmity was what did Jesus say about that my grace is made perfect in weak uh, my strength is made perfect in weakness and my weakness. grace is sufficient for thee yeah. yeah so so we all as christians i think in this for me we come to recognize the reason for the crucifixion and the reason for god's mercy is because the closer you draw to christ i think the more you find your own frailty and weaknesses uh you're, you're more sensitive to your own frailties and weaknesses so that so that god is glorified right it's what john says he must increase but i must decrease and the way in which we decrease is realizing that <laughs> for all the good stuff we think we do, Wayne, we, yeah. we're just sheep. <laughs> we're, we're just sheep. And we really have to keep that childlike humility. And I think one way that, that God does that with us is to remind us of where we're weak. To, to You know, the Spirit's job is to convict us of sin and, 
and to not to remind us of we're weak, so to throw it in our face, but to show us God's grace. Dan, you're a weak person. Here's you know I'm I can't I'm thin skinned. I can't deal with negative criticism very well. Yeah, and where yeah. where we're where we're weak, God is strong, and He can That's give right. us strength beyond our ten, our natural tendencies. He brings out something out of nothing, and and you know what Paul says. In Corinthians or Second Corinthians, I think it is. It is He who said, uh, "Let light shine out of darkness," who has shown in our hearts. You know, we have this treasure in clay jars. We are broken vessels, but that that glory of God is 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 contrast with our brokenness, so that we don't think it's us, right? We don't rely on ourselves and go, "Oh, I'm so wonderful. I'm so smart. I'm so handsome. I'm so great. I have all these wonderful gifts. I'm such a great person." <laughs> yeah, it's really that God is so great. That's it. That's it. It's not about us. The universe isn't about us. The resurrection isn't about us. It's all finally about Jesus and his grace to us and his glory to us. Part of that grace and glory, of course, includes us, of course. But we are finally not the center of this universe. Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, and the glory of God is the centerpiece of the universe. And so it doesn't matter if you're weak. All the better. As Paul says, (laughs) I will rejoice in my weaknesses, you know? And As I think the, our weaknesses bring out God's grace even better. Yeah, they, they do. They do. And, and as older as I get, you know, the, the, my, own, my own weaknesses, I see more and more the need of, of, of why the cross was essential. It wasn't because, oh, I have some unpleasant behavior in my life. No, sin is pretty terrible. And it has impacted all of us in, in a variety of different ways. And um, nobody gets to heaven on their own, but only through Christ and what he has done for us on the cross and through his resurrection. He is our righteousness. Okay, Wayne, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, Colin Humphrey's book, uh, we will put that in the link in the description below. Oh, and uh, Dan, I'd like to mention on my website, I have an article on the crucifixion date. You can go to creationanswers.net and scroll down and look in the search box for crucifixion date, and you'll find an article that summarizes Humphrey's um, points about narrowing down the crucifixion date okay so we'll put a link to that in the description as well as well as to the book and of course the best book and reference on the table regarding jesus's death burial and resurrection of course is matthew mark luke and john um, the bible of course gives us a fuller picture the best picture if you really want to know what's going on there um, you know read the word uh, we all need to read more i need to read it more uh, so happy Easter to everyone. This will this was recorded Saturday, but uh, we are broadcasting it here, uh, opening it um, for Easter Sunday. So happy Easter to everybody. And uh, Wayne. So Wayne, uh, we will see you right here again next time on Good Heavens. Good Heavens. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. Visit Watchman.org today for resources on world religions, cults, non-Christian ideas, and Christian apologetics. If you have enjoyed today's episode of Good Heavens, be sure to check out our sister podcast, Apologetics Profile, on Podomatic and also on Patreon at patreon.com slash watchmanfellowship. Apologetics Profile features conversations on Mormonism, Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, as well as a rich variety of apologetics topics all designed to equip and prepare you to engage the world around you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can also financially support both of our podcasts by becoming a Patreon of Good Heavens and Apologetics Profile for just a few dollars a month. 
If you would like weekly text message reminders of new Apologetics Profile podcasts, just text the word podcast to 50700. That's texting the word podcast to 50700. Both Good Heavens and Apologetics Profile can also be found on Amazon and Apple Podcasts. For Wayne Spencer and Watchman Fellowship, I'm staff apologist Daniel Ray.